0: Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've been studying and looking at the Gospel, and we're going to take go in a little different direction today, but it really is included in the Gospel because we're going to look... If you could just turn that one off. <clears throat> Thank you. If, uh, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper today, what it's about. And uh, we've talked about this from time to time. A couple of years ago, I just felt in my heart that instead of just having this every month... We were to only have it on certain occasions when we would spend a whole service focused on it, and you'll see why in a minute. Because we were, it's very easy to take it for granted, and that's what was happening in 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 the church at Corinth. They were having trouble; they were getting distracted, and they were coming together in Corinth, and they were bringing their box lunches. They were bringing; they were having basically a potluck supper, and some of them would bring in their, you know, big huge. Uh, it's like our church picnic. Some of them were big huge spreads, and others we you know went to. KFC and brought some, you know, obviously they didn't have it then, but they brought, you know, a little bit, and they weren't sharing with each other. Some were coming and they were getting drunk, others came, but they basically saw this as a picnic, as a church gathering, and they did not recognize it for what it is, which is the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And so Paul wrote these words to them to correct them, and we're going to pick up on here because we're going to look at another, today another aspect of the significance of what it is we do because the tendency, although we don't do what the error that they were committing, and as I said, their error is they were coming and bringing food and just thinking like it was some average get-together and some average meal, and uh, and they were doing it selfishly. We go to the other extreme. We just kind of take it for granted, throw it on at the end at the end of a service, and say, well, we you know we took communion today without really thinking of the significance of what it means. So let me just read here. We'll start in verse. We'll start in verse, um, I'm in 2 Corinthians, that's why it doesn't make sense. We'll start in verse, here somewhere, verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's supper? For in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received... Now this is what they've been doing. Now he's going to tell them what God showed him, what Jesus showed him, the significance of the Lord's Supper is. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink this cup, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then he goes on and warns them. He said, You're to examine yourself because if you eat and drink of this cup, eat this bread and drink this cup, if you take the Lord's table without rightly discerning what you're doing... Then, then because of this, many of you are sick and some of you have died because of this. Well, we don't really take communion that seriously that if we don't do it with the right attitude, it can bring sickness into our life and open the door for Satan to come into our lives and begin to, to do things in our lives. But this is clearly what the Word of God says. It's not for us to be afraid of. Can you please turn that off? Because that, the green light's still on. Just turn that one off because it keeps flickering. The right one does. So we need to go back and take a look at this and what is the real significance of the Lord's table and why are we celebrating this? Why do we celebrate this? And there are a number of different avenues that you can look at it because the Lord's grace, what he's done for us, the Bible says in Corinthians and Ephesians, is many faceted. But we're going to look at a particular aspect from what Paul writes here specifically. So let's go back and look at exactly what he says here in verse 24. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat this, which is the broken bread, is my body, which is broken for you. Now, some of you have been raised in a religious tradition that teaches you that, that this literally becomes his body. And I, I don't, this is not what he's saying here. What he's saying is this represents my body, and the root of this goes back to the Passover meal, where, where, where it talks about they broke bread together and they ate, they ate um, the lamb together and then they would drink the cup of the covenant that they would drink, the old covenant that they would drink. And so this is not saying that it becomes his body. It's saying he represents his body because we'll see in a minute what he, how he says that. Which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what we're to do is to remember him. Now, in the Bible, remembrance doesn't tend to mean, it means more than what it tends to mean to you and me. Because what remember tends to mean to me is, oh, I forgot it. What is it? What was that person's name? Oh, yes, now I remember. It's calling back into my memory something that was there somewhere, but I lost touch with. But God doesn't have a faulty memory. So God doesn't forget things. I know it says he forgets our sins, but that doesn't mean he couldn't recall them if he wanted to. It means he chooses not to look at them. So remembrance in the Bible is a much more significant term. It's a covenant term. It means to keep in front of you as your motivation, keep in front of you in your thinking, in the foremost of your thinking, why you're doing what you're doing. So he says, do this, and as you do this, you're to remember me. You're to bring what I've done for you. You're to bring bring who I am in your life. You're to bring that to the forefront of your thinking and settle it there and to do that together as the body of Christ when you've assembled together. So one of the purposes is to remember who he is in our lives by looking at what represents the price, the broken body and the shed blood. But look at the next verse because this is what we're going to talk about today. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. This do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, what's the significance of his death? Obviously, he paid for our sins on the cross, and we understand that. But there's a key in here that takes it to another level, that takes it to a depth, because most of us live our lives without a really real understanding down in our hearts of what his death meant for us, means for us. And we come to church and we talk about Christ, we sing about him, we sing about the blood, we sing about, you know, Jesus is coming back again, he's our redeemer, he's our savior. But do we really live our life day in and day out with the full awareness of what that means to me every day? Or is it something we remember when we pray, we remember when we read our Bible, we remember from time to time? But we're to live our life with this in front of us all the time, with this awareness, walking in an awareness. I was reading a devotion the other day that I read a good, a good example of that, because the Bible says, you know, pray without ceasing. We're to keep, we're to love Him at all times. We're to praise the Lord at all times. Well, you obviously can't pray on your knees 24 hours a day. You'll get fired from your job, and we can't go around just saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But there's it doesn't mean that. And I read an example that makes it so much clearer to me out of our regular everyday experiences. Your children, and when you were a child living with your parents, you, you, you didn't think about your mother or your father all the time. You may be at school, you may, but, but you were aware you belonged to them. You were aware you had an identity in that family. Because in school, when they called your name unless it was some unusual situation where you know there was, you were, you, there was a, a mixed family or something, when they mentioned your name, that was a reminder that you belonged to that family. So you lived your life with an awareness that although you weren't in touch with your mother or father all the time, you belonged to them and they belonged to you, and that if you needed them, they were immediately present to you. They were available to you. So it's kind of like that remembrance, is keeping an awareness it's down underneath in the foundation of our life, of who he is and our relationship with him. The key to that is in this verse 25. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What we're going to talk about this morning is this covenant, the blood covenant. And I'm going to attempt to give you in about 35, 40 minutes what took ten weeks in school of ministry to only begin to cover. So you know, we pray that God's going to give me the, the discerning of what to share and what to, because this is a subject that once you get into it, it, just, it will transform your life. And the beginning is to go back and understand a little bit about what a covenant is and why they're so important to understand. A covenant is something that we're not so familiar with in our western society although if you ever had a mortgage you've entered into a covenant you entered into a covenant with the bank or the mortgage company because you didn't just promise to repay them you committed some things to them when you signed that mortgage you committed to do some things there are things known in at least under Massachusetts law There are some basic covenants that by law are implied in a mortgage and that's what they're called covenants mortgage covenants and the reason that covenants were important in the eastern culture is because man can't take one, we can't trust one another's words. If, 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 if we were all righteous and holy as God, we could take each other at our word. So when you went to the bank to borrow your money to, to buy your house, and they said, you know, here's the $150,000, will you promise to repay it? And you said, I absolutely promise to repay it. The closing would be over at that point because they just take you at your word because they know you'd do what you'd say. Well, they obviously don't take us at our word because they make you sign a promissory note, which they can take you to court to enforce. And then you have to sign a mortgage where basically you pledge your house back to them as a surety and guarantee that you're going to do what you said. So if you don't do what you said, they don't have to rely just on your promise. They got your house to back it up. And if you don't do what you say, they'll take the house and then they can sell it in order to pay what you owed them. So a purpose of a covenant was to give some certainty in personal relationships. And there were all different kinds of covenants, and the base of the covenant was what's given is the pledge. So you have a partnership, where what was pledged was my, I, I, I pledged, Uh, my talent and assets into this partnership and you pledged your financial resources into it. So we committed something of substance and meaning into this arrangement and that made it more solemn, that made it more secure, that gave it a a level of of significance and meaning and depth to it far above just the personal promises that were made. Now God in his dealings with man, as you know, I hope you know, God not only does not lie, God cannot lie. So the fact that God ever says something once, you can take it to the bank. It will happen. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it, and shall he not bring it to pass? John 17, 17, Jesus says, "My word is God. His word is truth. God doesn't tell the truth. His word is truth. The reason he can't lie is whatever God says, that's what truth is. Truth is defined by what God says. So that ought to be enough. The fact that God says something to us ought to be enough. But God understands us. He knows that we relate to him on the basis of how we relate to each other. That's why Numbers 23, 19 starts out by saying, God's not a man. So all your experiences with whether you can believe the word of somebody or not, when it comes to God, you've got to throw all your experiences of people out the window because God ain't one of them. <laughs> God's not a man. But God knowing that our background, that we don't always keep our word, knowing that people have not always kept their word with us, God knows not only that, the other problem is you can't see Him. You can't see him say it. You can't see the look in his eyes to see whether he's sincere or not. So we have to receive his promises by faith, not by sight. So God, in order to give certainty and surety to man at different times, entered into different covenants with man. And there were different types of covenant. But the highest covenant, the most solemn covenant, the most binding covenant that, that was known to man in their practices is called a blood covenant. And what makes a blood covenant so significant and solemn is what is pledged is not your house. What is given is not, you know, your children or, or, or your dog or your car. What is pledged is your life to back up your promise. So that when a covenant was entered into between two families or two tribes or two groups of people, they would literally pledge their lives to each other so that if one group broke it, they would forfeit their lives. Now you do that and you're going to take your word seriously. By the way, that's the basis of marriage. Marriage is a blood covenant. This is why it says in Malachi, God hates divorce. He doesn't hate people that are divorced. He hates divorce because it's the breaking of a covenant. It's the breaking of a blood covenant. Because the essence of a blood covenant is this. What I give in this covenant is myself. All that I am, all that I have, my strength, my reputation, my assets, my liabilities, I give me into this arrangement as my commitment. And then if you are responding with that same kind of covenant, you give yourself into it to bind it together. And that's why in a marriage what's given is I gave myself almost 48 years ago to Anita. All my assets, which weren't much, and my liabilities, which at that point weren't much, and she gave all her assets and liabilities. But that means all my baggage from my childhood came into this too. Some of you know what I mean. And all of her baggage, which wasn't so much, came into this. So I brought all of myself into this. She brought all of herself into this. Now the problem is, when, when two people, or two groups of people, enter into that kind of arrangement, how do you make that so clear what you're doing that you'll never forget it? So there was a ceremony that they would go through. And it varied a little bit, but, but some of the elements were this. First of all, they would, they, would, they, would, uh, they would make a pledge to each other. They would make out the terms. of the. This is what I'm committed to do and you would say, this is what I commit to do. Then very often they would take a part of their clothing they might take their, co- their cloak, and of course they didn't wear coats like this, they would take a robe or something, and they would exchange garments with each other. Why? Because the garment, the coat, the outer cloak or outer garment represented their personalities. Remember Joseph's father gave him a coat of many colors and that made him look different than his brethren, that's why they were jealous of him. That was a statement by his father that there was something special about this young man's personality. So by giving of my coat to the other, to the, to the other person, is significant, I'm giving my personality, I'm giving who I am. They would take often a weapon, a shield, or they would take a sword, and they would exchange weapons, which is a pledge of exchanging my strength to defend you. If you come in trouble, if somebody attacks you, that means they've attacked me. Whatever somebody does to you, they've done to me. And there were other things that they would, they would often exchange names, which is, again goes back to the practice of why in a marriage there's an exchange of names that takes place. Because it represents your identity. And there are other things that they would do, but one of the last things that they would do is, at the end, is they would do two things. They would stand up and there's a case in, in Deuteronomy where they shows that they did this they would stand up with the two families, the two tribes, the two nations, or you know, they would stand opposite each other, and they would recite the blessings of the covenant and the curse of the covenant. Oh one other thing that they would do very often in the biblical times, is they would take animals. And they would take an animal and they would literally slaughter it by cutting it down the middle. And they would lay the two parts, they would lay them open to the air on opposite sides. And then the parties, and there's usually, and I'll explain more of this in a minute, there would be somebody that would represent each side. They would lock arms and they would walk in a figure eight pattern around and down the middle of these separated animals. And the figure eight pattern represents infinity, represents forever. And the, and the dividing of the, of, the, of the animal is taking something that was whole and opening it up, and now they enter into that breach representing the unity that's taking place. And whenever they did that, of course, it caused the shedding of blood. So there was blood on their feet, there was blood on their nostrils, there was blood all over the place. And blood in the Bible represents life. Leviticus 17 says the, blood, the life is in the blood. So the significance of a blood covenant is it's the giving of my blood as, a, as, a, as the pledge of my life. Now, in some cultures, they would literally cut themselves and 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 join hands together so that blood would pass, and it's thought that that may be the original the root of the handshake, to bind something. They would cut their palms and they would shake hands, and in the process, blood would go from one into the other, so that commingling of blood representing a unity of their lives. But it also left a scar. So that if I held my hand up, if somebody comes against me and I hold my hand up, they can see that scar which lets them know, wait a minute, this person you're approaching is in covenant with somebody else. I better find out who they are because they pledge to stand behind them and revenge their life or, 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 or bring a vengeance for their life if I harm this person. Now, Hebrews were not allowed to drink blood because some cultures, they drank the blood. So what the Hebrews had to do was symbolically they would split the animals and they would use an animal's blood. And there's more that would be involved in that. And then there would be a recitation of the blessings of keeping this covenant and a recitation of the curse of what's going to happen if you break this covenant. And then at the end, they would have a meal to celebrate it. The meal was not the entering into the covenant. In fact, the term that was used in Hebrew was to cut a covenant. Because entering into covenant automatically meant you were going to cut something somewhere so that blood would flow. And then, as I said, there would be a meal to do two things. It would celebrate this union that had taken place. And the other thing that it would do is it would be a memorial. It would remind them symbolically of what they've just done. And there may be different food that they would have, but almost always there would be two essential elements of this covenant meal. And one was bread, because that represented life also, and the other was wine, which represented blood. So they would drink wine, they would eat bread, and that represented, that was a celebration celebration of the union that was taking place between these two families, these two tribes, these two nations, or whoever the group was. Now, that's the background of a covenant. The essence of covenant, again, is this is so important, the essence of a blood covenant, it is a total pledge of my life, of everything that I am, everything I am, and everything that I have for the rest of my life to you, to whatever it is you need. And it's a total pledge of your life and everything that you have and everything that you are to me for the rest of my, your life as for whatever it is that I need. It's a total giving of self. And the essence of that is we, the two that were different now become one. All right. Come back to what God was doing. There were different times God entered into covenants. Now, some of the covenants he entered into with his people were not full blood covenants. But the two most significant ones are one he entered into Abraham, which is the one we're going to talk about this morning, and the other that he entered into with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. The children of Israel, God entered into a covenant with Abraham because God chose Abraham as a man because God wanted to form a brand new people, a brand new nation, a brand new race of people that would be his people, that would belong to him. And God didn't choose an existing people, he chose a man, and that's often how God works. He chose a man, and he chose him because he said, I know he'll be faithful to teach his children. That's the basis on which he chose him. And he chose him, and he said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. In fact, I'm going to make nations out of you. And we're going to see in a few minutes, that blew Abram's mind. Because Abram lived in a a culture which became Babylon, which now became what we call Iraq, Iran. And and they worshipped the moon. They didn't worship the real and living God. And this real and living God speaks to him and says, I'm going to make you a nation of peoples. One nation and then multiple nations. I'm going to bless through you. And we're going to see in a minute. But then later, God takes this people that He f- creates through Abram. They end up in Egypt in bondage, and God made a promise, in fact, He made it to Abram, that after they were there over 400 years, He would deliver them out. And they come out into the wilderness, and God calls Moses, another man that He chose. And he brings them up onto Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God gives him what we call the Ten Commandments. God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel while they were in the wilderness. And God gives them instructions on how to worship him. He gives them a thing called the tabernacle to be a place of worshiping him and to come into his presence to a very limited degree. And God gives them other principles by which to live. And at the end of this process, which takes a while, God has them stand at the edge on a mountain and God declares to them the blessings and the curses of this covenant called the covenant on Mount Sinai. And you can read that in Deuteronomy 28. The first 15 verses are the blessings. The rest of it, which is 16 through 60-something, is the curses. And then there is sickness and disease and everything you can imagine. The blessing for keeping the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the curse for disobeying it. Okay. Now let's, we're going to look at the covenant that God made with Abraham because he made it before he made it with the one with... The, but I wanted you to understand the difference of those two covenants because when we get down in Hebrews in a few minutes, you're going to see they're both referred to there. All right. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. Here's the issue again. God's chosen a man. Doesn't know anything about God. And God's going to say to him... I'm going to form a brand new people out of you. Now, God first speaks to Abram in chapter 12, where he basically says, I'm choosing to bless you. Well, you know, when God chooses to bless you, that's very different than if I choose to bless you. I mean, just think of what God can do, anything and everything. God chooses to bless you. He says, I'm going to bless you. And in you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And not only that, if anybody blesses you, I'll bless them. And if anybody curses you, in other words, I'm going to treat everybody on the basis of how they treat you. That's a covenant. Starts out by saying, we go to chapter 15 now. And so God reveals this to him in our Bible in different phases. So chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said to the Lord, Lord, what will you give me? So he knew God was giving him something. For I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born of my house is, not, is my heir. He's not even my own fruit of my body. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him said, This one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth, for your own body will be your heir. And he brought him outside, said, Look towards the heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them, and said, So shall your descendants be. And it says, Abraham, he believed in God, and God accounted to him for righteousness. Then in verse 7, God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you to inherit it. And he said, Lord, how do I know I will inherit it? So God just said, I'm going to give this land to you. And Abram says, how do I know I can trust you? We're not going to take the time to read there, but God puts Abram, says, go get these animals. He, he has him divide the animals up, just as we talked about. Then Abram goes into a sleep and as a dream, and in this dream, there's a ceremony by what, which a smoking lamp and a, and a candle go, go through this piece. And so, God is represented by these pieces going through. So, he's, what he's telling Abraham is, I, as God, am cutting a covenant with you. God could not come down and cut his hand. So, God is symbolically representing. So, he's showing Abraham, I'm entering into a, one of these covenants you're familiar with. I, God, who cannot lie I'm entering into one of these with you now go over to chapter 17 we're going to see a little more of it when Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared now by the way when this verse happens he's 75 and Abram's basically saying what do I get out of this I don't have an, even have an air that's come from my body what I've had to do, is, which was their custom in the old day, is if the, if the man and wife could not conceive a child on their own, they would take one of the servant girls, and he would, he would have relations with her, and she would conceive and he would adopt that child as his, so that the name their name would not disappear. And Abram's saying, this is the situation I'm in. If you're in your covenant with me, I don't even have the most essential thing a father needs, which is an heir. And, and God says, the one that's going to be your heir is going to come from your own body. Abraham's 75, and Sarah's 65, and she's barren. Now, he's 99. She's 89, and nothing's happened. So you think you've waited a long time for what God promised? So he's getting shaky. God appears to him again. Again. And says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Don't ever forget who He is. He's Almighty God. So whatever He's promised you, He's Almighty to do it. I am Almighty God. Walk before Me and be blameless, and I will make My covenant between Me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for Me... As far as I'm concerned, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. And then he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. I don't have time to go into that detail. But he's taken Abram and divided it up, and he's stuck in the middle, Yah, which was God's name. So God's now given Abram his name. And from this point on, God refers to... Oh, this is good. Yes, it is. From this point on, God ref- does no longer just refer to himself as the Almighty God. From this point on, he refers to himself, I am the God of Abraham. Yes. Now, what's of mean? These are the glasses of John. That means these glasses belong to John. So from this point on, God is saying nothing less that I am the God who belongs to Abraham. And Abraham is now known as Abram, with Yah in me, with my name in there. Then he does it with Sarah. Sarai becomes Sarah. A-H is the part of the name of God. Yah, that's in there. Alright, we could spend more time on that. Verse 6, And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, King shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. Look at this. For an everlasting covenant. The covenant on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments was not an everlasting covenant. This was different. This was a blood covenant. An everlasting covenant. Covenant. And I will be God to you and your descendants after you. God did not promise to be God to any other people. He was their creator. He was their judge. But he did not give himself to them. But he gave himself to Abraham and all the people that would come from him. And the world should never forget that. And I will give to you and your descendants after you or a stranger in the land of Canaan in everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, now, let's go over to Hebrews 8. How does that relate to us? Hebrews chapter 8. That was about six weeks worth of school of ministry. We'll start in verse six. Now what, what the writer of Hebrews is comparing here is the covenant on Mount Sinai in in in, in from the, on the on the, the Ten Commandments and all that came after that. Hebrews eight verse six. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, Jesus as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what Jesus has done for us is he's the mediator. He's the one that's brought in. We're going to see in a few minutes he's the guarantee of a covenant that God has made that's better than the covenant that God made on Mount Sinai when god gave them the ten commandments it's better than the covenant that god made when God gave them the tabernacle where their sins were being washed, their sins were being covered over, atoned for, so that they had a place where they could come every year and have their sins paid for so that they could come away with a clean record, where they could go in and have a form of worship where God's presence could be among them and lead and guide them. But He wouldn't couldn't be in your house with you. He was in the middle of the tabernacle. And you had to go and bring that bull, that goat, that sheep, that turtle dove to the priest to sacrifice, to pay for your sins. And you had to do that at least once a year and other times to go. And, but that was a very limited, watered-down version of what God wanted. But it's the best He could do at that time because as He sees, the blood of bulls and goats can't wash away sin. And so Jesus has come to be the mediator, the guarantee, the agent that brings a better covenant made on based on better promises. Let's read down. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, that's the first covenant, that's Mount Sinai. He says, Behold, their days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because I did not con- they did not continue in my covenant and they broke it which is why the curse came on them. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, not on tablets of stone on a mountain, but I will put my laws in their heart, in their mind, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be, look at that, their God. Possessive pronoun. I will be a God that belongs to them. Not I will be a God, I will be their God. I will give myself to them. And none of them, and they shall be my people. So I will belong to them, and they will belong to me. Verse 11. And none of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of those brothers, saying, know the Lord... For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Under that covenant on Sinai, they couldn't know God. Only the priest could experience Him to a degree. And that after performing certain rituals, and, and the presence of God was in the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, and no one could go in there except the high priest on one day, the Day of Atonement, having performed all the right rituals, wearing all the right clothes. And if he did that wrong, he died on the spot. If they didn't do everything just right, if they didn't dot every I and cross every T, didn't put everything just they would die on the spot because of the holy presence of God. But he's saying, under this new covenant, you don't have to know me through a priest. You don't have to say to somebody else, you know, I know more about God, but I'm available to everyone to know equally. And I, Verse 12, and I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant he has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and vanishes away. Go over to... Um, over in chapter, uh, further in chapter 9, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself with that spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, because of the death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who were called may receive the promise of eternal life. And over in chapter 10, he talks about, We therefore have boldness to enter in because we have a high priest. And let us draw near verse 22 says with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil consciousness that's a guilty conscience shame and our bodies washed with pure water that's what baptism does All right what does this mean to us then let's go to let's go to Galatians chapter 3 So the covenant on Mount Sinai has been replaced What about the covenant of Abraham that's an everlasting covenant? What about that one? And that's the one we're talking about this morning. Galatians chapter 3. Start in verse 5. Let's go to verse 6. "'Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham.' For the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with the believing Abraham. So what he's going to go on to say, and he says somewhere else, is that, that the seed of Abraham is not those that are just born of the flesh, those who are born naturally as Hebrews. But, it's, but Abraham's relationship with God is because he believed God's promise. And righteousness was attributed to him. And all those that will believe the promise of God through Christ, the promise of this covenant, then become children of Abraham. My flesh isn't a child of Abraham. I cannot trace my fleshly genealogy back to Jewish roots, but my spirit man is. And yours is also. Okay. For as many, verse 10, as many as are of the works of the law, as many as are relying on the covenant on Mount Sinai, are under the curse. Why? Because you can't live up to it. God said, if you perfectly keep this law, then the blessing comes on you. But if you ever violate this law, then the curse comes on you. You ought to read that curse in Deuteronomy 16 on. There's sickness and disease. Everything you can imagine is in there. Poverty's in there. Everything that sin brought into the world is listed in there. And then there's a general catch-all at the end. So every bad thing the devil would want to do to you is only has entrance into you because you're under the curse of not obeying the Ten Commandments perfectly all the time. That's what the law did. For as many who are relying on the works of the law, you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But now that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So we don't come to God under the old covenant of Mount Sinai by keeping the law. We come to God by being heirs of Abraham because Abraham's righteousness came because he took God at his word, his promise, and entered into that covenant with God. And therefore God could bless Abraham because Abraham simply believed God's promise. So God now gives Christ to us as a promise and if we believe that promise that God has done, of what God has done for us in Christ, then we, His righteousness is attributed to us as it was to Abraham. But if we go back and rely on our own deeds, our own effort, our own efforts, our own good intentions, anything that we bring to the table, we go back under the law and now it's based completely on how faithful and how good and how righteous we are. And since none of us can measure up, we go under that curse. And that's what the temptation to do... the Galatians were being tempted to do. Verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Here's what I want to get to. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What's this all about? Well, I, I, I skipped over something when I talked about the ceremony that they would go through to enter a covenant. Because if you're going to have a, tribes, two tribes enter into a covenant, or if you're going to have two families or two nations enter into a covenant with one another... How can everybody cut themselves? How can everybody drink the wine? How can everybody go through the ritual themselves? They can't, so here's what they would do. You would have one tribe or one family choose a representative, and he would step forth. And the other tribe would choose a representative, and he would step forth in the presence of everybody, and they were called the covenant head, H-E-A-D, like this. They were a covenant representative, So whatever they said and whatever they did was as if this entire nation or tribe or family did it. They were representing on the behalf of all their brothers and sisters, listen carefully, not only that we're alive today, but that would ever be part of this family or tribe because it's an everlasting covenant. It's a blood covenant which is forever. So anyone born 20 years later into this family was already by birth subject to the blessing and the curses of this covenant that was physically entered into by the covenant head 30, 40, 50, 100 years earlier. Are you with me? Now when God entered into the covenant with Abraham, he didn't need a covenant head, because, other than by the, the dream, because Abraham was just one person. Alright. But Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along because the covenant that God made with Abraham was a forerunner. It was never completely fulfilled in Abraham's day. It could never be fulfilled until someone came to represent, God, represent man back to God. And Jesus came as the covenant head, not from God's side, from man's side, which is why God's Son had to take on flesh, one of the reasons, and dwell among us. And Jesus came, and on that cross, what Jesus is telling his disciples, if you go back and read it in in John's account and Matthew's account, when Jesus takes the bread and takes the cup, and said, this is my body that's broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. Jesus is telling, they're sharing a covenant meal of the new covenant. It's not a completely new covenant. It's, a new, it's the fulfillment. It's the final stage, the fulfilled stage of the covenant God made with Abraham thousands of years before. And Jesus is signifying by that bread and that cup that this is a covenant meal of a new covenant. And then when he went to that cross that next morning, when he went to that cross, on that cross, when, his, when he was beaten in the Roman praetorium, when his, when his back was laid open, when the crown of thorns was shoved down on his head and the blood began to run down over his face, and when he ultimately was on that cross and those nails were driven into his hands, and that spear was stuck on his side and the nails were driven into his feet, his body was broken His blood was shed. A new covenant was cut on that cross by the cutting of His flesh and the shedding of His blood. And by the fact that it was the Son of God, a sinless man, cutting this covenant. Now, the security of a covenant is in the one that cuts it, fulfilling it. God's made it from His side. He can't change. He will never be unfaithful. But what Christ did, whereas Israel broke their covenant, they failed to keep their covenant. Why? Because they, as much as they may have intended to, they couldn't live it out all the time. And so they were unfaithful in their end of that covenant on Mount Sinai. But God sends Jesus, who was tempted in all ways as we were, yet without sin, so he could have sinned. He could have broken it. But he didn't. He resisted, on the, he resisted it in the garden the first time when Satan's tempting him in the wilderness. He resisted it all the way along. He resisted it in the garden in the end. He resisted it when they bad-mouthed him, when they spat upon him, when everything in our flesh would have wanted to strike back. He kept his mouth shut because he had to go to that cross sinless. Because he had to represent you and me. So he is our covenant head. And as our covenant head, he cut a blood covenant with God the Father. And the only way, listen, the only way that covenant can be broken is if either one of these covenant heads is unfaithful to it. So the strength of the covenant that you and I have with God is not your faithfulness. It's not my faithfulness, the security, because Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. I'm not the guarantee of it. You're not the guarantee of it. He's the guarantee of it. Glory to God. 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 That's why Jesus says, "Come to me, you that are weary, Weary of what? Of trying to live up to the standard. Weary of trying to measure up. Weary of carrying around this burden of the guilt and the shame of falling short of the requirements. Come to me. Come to me, you that are weary, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Only He can give that rest because only He's the one that's based on. It gets better because it says here and that the blessing of verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham not the blessings plural that the blessing of Abraham might might come upon the Gentiles that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ that we might receive the promise of the spirit through him. When you came to Christ when you Asked him to come into your life. The Bible says you were joined to him. You were fused. Your spirit and his spirit were fused together. That's why everything the Bible says you have, you have in him, through him, because of him. It's always in him. Because what you have is because you're in him. You're in the covenant head. You're part of the covenant head. This is why Jesus told his disciples, abide in me. Stay joined to me. Abide in me. Remain in me. Be in me. Enjoy that. Walk in the faith of that. Jesus became the curse for you. Go back and read Deuteronomy 28 and find out what he became for you. Sickness, disease, poverty, lack. But the best part of all is that the blessing of Abraham wasn't the wealth and provision, although that's included. God's blessing is there, whatever you need. God's given himself to us. That's the essence of covenant. God's given himself to us. And everything he has. Romans 8, 32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also together with him freely give us when he gave Christ to us, he gave us everything he had, not just in him. Everything he had, he heals nothing back. But the essence of what he's given us is his spirit. Because his spirit in us is his presence in us. And this is why it says, and we'll end here, you are the temple of the living God. Paul says, don't you understand that your body It's not in the Holy of Holies anymore. God's presence is in you by His Spirit. His holy presence is in you. He's not just given Himself to you, He's in you. He's become one with you, and you've become one with Him. And the reason that we don't walk in this, the reason we go out there and get afraid and overwhelmed by things is we're trying to handle everything by looking at how it affects me instead of realizing I'm joined to God. The devil knows that. He knows when he looks, misses with you, he's messing with God, but his confidence is you don't know that. And so what we do today when we share the Lord's table is we're sharing a covenant meal together today. And by that covenant meal, we're reminding ourselves, we're celebrating what, the covenant that we have in Christ, with God through Christ. And we're remembering this. Well, all we've done today is remember. That's what we've done today. We're remembering what it is he did for us by cutting a covenant for us on that cross.